Thank you. I, uh, <clears throat> as the people were coming into the door tonight, I met a lady that uh, my relationship with Baraka and so on goes way back 45 years. Um, 45 years ago, I stayed in her home during the summer uh, while I was uh, studying under Bob's ministry. So that kind of dates us all. Um, anyway, um, Robbie asked me to um, come and explain a little bit more about the framework. Some of you have heard a little bit about it and have uh, listened to some of the series. And so I thought it would be um, interesting to kind of go into the, frame, uh, the background for this framework. So if we could pause for a few moments when we can examine our hearts before we come to the Word of God using 1 John 1, 9 if we have to. With our heads bowed, please. Our Father, as we come to your authoritative Word, the inerrant Word, the Word that has been preserved down through the centuries, we ask that the Holy Spirit who inscripturated this Word, who preserved it, will illuminate our hearts to its content and equip us for ministering in our own individual lives, in our situations, here, here in the 21st century. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you have heard, uh, I, get, I gather from talking to some of you, um, about what uh, we call the biblical framework. And uh, I want to kind of give a little introduction to that. And tonight I'm, I'm, we'll, we'll go into some of the background of why I chose that particular way to teach the Word of God. And uh, next uh, tomorrow night we'll do a little bit more. Um, my point in saying this is I'm not going to actually go into the framework itself so much as I'm going to talk about its design, what we're trying to do with this approach to Scripture. Um, I think that would be more beneficial. I couldn't cover it anyway in, in three nights. So we're going to talk about its structure uh, rather than talk about all the little details, though um, I'm going to open it up for question and answers. Uh, so hopefully I'll have some answers to your questions. Um, if you have questions about the content of the framework from what you've been able to uh, listen to or, or hear about. Um, I have to apologize for some of the um, background of the framework in the sense that it was designed for a small local church. Uh, never dreamed that it would be going out on the internet. Um, but uh, Tommy Ice's uh, son decided that would be a good project and I said go for it if, if you want to do that. And so it's come that it, people all over the place are, are getting it. And I apologize for the fact that it's not edited. Uh, there are refinements in the presentation that need to be made. Uh, I have about, uh, I guess, 15, 16 more months left before I retire. And that's on my to-do list uh, when I retire to put it in sort of a publishable, more finished, more polished form. But we have to kind of put up with it for now, the way it is. Um, let me give a, a little background as to why I, I, I decided that I wanted to teach the Word of God in that particular mode. I ministered in a college environment for a while, and it was in the 70s. It was in the time of the anti-Vietnam protests. It was when we had very few tools available 
today we have worldview summit conferences and so on in evangelicalism. But in the 70s, we didn't have any of that. Uh, yet we had and we faced uh, a rising tide of young people who were so far away from the Word of God in their thinking, in their, even their terminology, in the, in the way they'd been trained to think or not to think, that there was this big chasm between trying to teach the Word of God and addressing people who were miles and miles away culturally from the Word of God. Um, evangelism, up until maybe ten years ago, has largely followed what we have inherited from the 19th century. Dwight L. Moody, uh, Charles Spurgeon, and the men of the 19th century, we forget sometimes, ministered in cultures that knew a little bit about Scripture. It's been said that bartenders in the 19th century knew more of Christian theology than Christians do in the 20th century. And that may, be, may not be true. But the point is that that kind of evangelism worked well because people understood there were truths that were absolute. It worked well because people understood there was a God who was the creator. But since that time, we have generations that have been trained in the public school system to think in Darwinian terms, to really almost get into a mental state where it becomes very difficult to communicate the word G-O-D and have it mean what the Bible means by it. So I'm sure if you work out in the workplace, you, you, you hear what I'm saying. But the point is that as our culture in our country becomes more and more controlled by the powers of unbelief, we're going to find ourselves the way missionaries find themselves when they're going into a pagan nation, pagan culture. I have a friend who has been involved with New Tribes Mission for a number of years. And he tells a story that one of the wake-up calls that this particular mission agency, and I might say that New Tribes Mission is probably one of the better mission boards that are out there, uh, they had a, a problem. And that was they noticed in, in villages where they thought they had evangelized, where they thought they had taught the Word of God, that when a crisis would hit, when an epidemic would uh, occur in these, in these people groups, that what they would do is they would revert back to their spiritism, revert back to their animism. They would even take scripture promises and use them like they would the amulets in the days when they had animism prior to the point where they became Christians. And so New Tribes did a, an analysis all during the 80s, in the mid-80s. Mid they, they sent teams in here to figure out what did we do wrong? Is our methodology somehow unscriptural? What can we do to prevent this from happening, this syncretism? And what they found out was that the way to properly communicate the gospel is that you've got to properly communicate who God is right from the start. And when you realize that this book, two-thirds of it, is Old Testament, and you go around the country and you will probably hear one out of 50 sermons that come from the Old Testament. Something's out of kilter. When two-thirds, the Bible, written by the Holy Spirit, was designed 
to build doctrine upon doctrine upon doctrine through a narration of history so that all of history is pedagogical. God set up history one century after another to teach doctrine upon doctrine upon doctrine. The Bible doesn't start in Genesis 1 with a Jesus story. But in the 40s and 50s and 60s, what was happening on the mission field? What were the translators translating first for the natives? The Gospel of Mark. Was that the first book in the scriptures? No. Genesis. Well, there's a reason why there's a sequence in scripture. And so what New Tribes found out was that in order to get a clear gospel, they had to go all the way back, not necessarily touching every detail, but go back and follow the historical sequence from creation, who God is, the fall, what sin is, is rebellion against that God, God's standards, the necessity of blood atonement, and why you have to be saved by faith. Those all come in a sequence. So, in the 80s, new tribes went through this. And as I talked with my friend in new tribes, I said, well, isn't that interesting? Because in the 70s, I came to the same conclusion. I mean, Lubbock, Texas is not exactly Austin as far as advanced uh, dialogues go. But here we have a university campus in West Texas infected with the same kind of thinking you can find at the University of Texas or Harvard or Yale or anybody else. It's, the reason is, is that academia is all interconnected. Same textbooks, same PhDs, same schools to get the PhDs, and the same kind of teaching that goes on. So I came to the conclusion in the 70s that we had to take the Word of God and respect the historical sequence that God used to reveal His doctrine. And that was, the, that was the lead in, that was the curriculum, that was the lesson plan in order to make it clear. I extended the doctrines of the framework so that it includes all the major doctrines. What new tribes did in the 80s, they confined it to just soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, Christology, that sort of stuff. But it was, in their view, they had to get that gospel clear. As missionaries, that was their term. So they have a framework that they created in the 80s that emphasizes, and I believe Robbie has um, you with the foundation series in your, in your uh, Sunday school, um, that came out of that big discussion in the 80s. So that's some history, that's some historical background. And what I'd like to do now is tie this in, this framework, into the faith rest drill. For years and years and years, Bob faithfully taught the faith rest drill. And you look at it, and there's three steps in there. And I'm going to go back to those three steps, because it's step number two that is the connection with the framework. The first step in the faith rest drill is you go back to some known scriptural principle. You may be facing a certain problem in life, it may be a certain situation, certain circumstance. You may have some scriptures memorized. You may have a verse that comes to mind. You may have a doctrine that you have got some notes on. But some fragment of scripture, be it a verse, it can be a doctrine, it can be some notes that you've taken, you start there because that's the authoritative word of God. And to, to use the faith rest drill as a problem-solving device, you have to start with the authority of scripture. 
So the first step always has been go back to the promise. Go back to something that you can get your hands on, which is a reminder of how important Bible teaching is on a systematic basis because you never can predict what's going to happen tomorrow. So you have to have scripture loaded today to handle tomorrow. So the first thing is to go back to the scriptures. The second thing, you go through that faith rest drill, is to develop a rationale. Now, Colonel Thiem uses the term rationale, and he uses it for a very good term, very good reason, because a rationale is a development. It's a logical development of a theme. And what I will show you some diagrams here that I hope will make the, that, that rationale generation clearer. But the idea is that if I have a situation here and I'm going to walk by faith in the filling of the Holy Spirit, I've got to have a rationale so that I see that God's Word gives me the tools to handle that situation. And that sometimes can come quickly and sometimes it takes days and even weeks to grapple with this thing until the point comes where I am convinced the Word of God has the answer to this area of, of discussion, whatever it may be. And then the third thing, of course, is that once that happens and we can walk by faith, we experience the faith rest, the resting, the peace. But my contention is that that second step is where we face problems. Problems not of our own, problems fed to us by a culture that is hostile to the scriptures. And it becomes particularly important for new Christians, young people, to realize that to go from the first to the third, you can't go from the scripture to peace automatically in many cases. You have to go through a reasoning process. And that's where the framework uh, comes into power, so to speak. So now I want to um, go here, if I, all the technology works. Um, let me advance. This is a slide that I originally created for a debate that I had in a Unitarian church in uh, Columbus, uh, Columbia, Maryland. And uh, myself and a Christian uh, cardiologist went up against a, a NASA scientist and a Unitarian female pastor. Um, we're discussing the issue of what is the gospel? Can we trust the scriptures? And one of the things that we want to learn, and I think it's important that whenever you learn a doctrine, that you think in your mind that you're learning something that collides with its opposite, with its denial. And when you look at the scriptures, you're looking at God's coherent revelation and he did this because the world is a fallen world, hostile to him. The carnal mind is enmity against God and cannot be subject to him. And there are two and only two ways of thinking. Now, that may seem kind of radical because you can say, well, I know four or five different kinds of thinking. I mean, there's a dozen cults out there. There's all kinds of philosophy and so on. But we can't get into all those details. And most of us don't have to. But I think it is important to go back to the fact that there are only two basic worldviews. There's the view, I should have put it on the right side, but it's on the left side. Um, it starts out with this fundamental background of Scripture. It says the Creator can be seen in the Bible, 
in ancient Israel, ancient monotheism and fundamentalism. Now you say, well, am I diluting the authority of Scripture? No. I'm using the Bible as the authority, but I'm also pointing out that if you go back in the archaeological evidences, you will see that very early in many people groups, they remembered God. Later, their culture degenerated into a polytheism. This is opposite to what you often get. Uh, the idea of evolution and monotheism came from polytheism. No. We as Christians should understand that from the scripture, where did all the people groups come from? They all came from Noah and his family. Well, doesn't that argue that every people's group further and further back, at least at one time, knew Genesis 1 to 10? All people groups came from the same boat. We all got, out, we all got off the same boat. And that means that has powerful implications because it means in analyzing any group of people in any area that ultimately their fathers, their grandfathers, their great-grandfathers, you take them back, they at one time knew the story of the flood. They knew the story of Genesis 1. So if they write mythologies and if they write these things today, those are a demonstration of what happens when people turn from the authority of Scripture. So ancient monotheism is a historical fact that corroborates the scriptures. Ancient Israel is a historical fact. Nobody can deny that Israel existed. And there's a feature about Israel that you want to remember. Uh, maybe a good conversation piece. There has been only one nation in all of human history that ever made a contract with God. Or was involved in a contract. Actually, we would say God made the contract with Israel, of course. But they are the only people. Now, isn't that remarkable? You can't find a contract with God in China. You can't find it in South America. You can't find it in our ancestors in Europe. The idea of a nation in a contract with God only comes from Israel. And so we have the Bible and, and down through fundamentalism and the conservative theology today. Now, what do we mean by all the biblical tradition? We say the creator-creature distinction. That is the heart of Scripture. And what is that opposite to? The right side of this slide is the dark. This is what, what the world system tries to substitute for Scripture. Ancient myths, Eastern religions... Western philosophy, modern theology, it's all the same in that they believe in this continuity of being. What is the continuity of being? It means denying the creator-creature distinction. Everything is on the same level. It's just the universe. The cosmos just exists. And there isn't such a thing as a God who created the universe out of nothing. That's, that's, there's gods and goddesses. But they're inside the cosmos. This is why you read mythology and uh, you have Zeus and Mount Olympus. And those gods are all inside the creation. There's nothing outside the creation. So we say that is the continuity of being. And that's true of modern theology. That is true of modern philosophy as it was true of the Canaanites in the land where Israel went in the ancient Old Testament. And finally down the bottom, we get down to the nub of this. This is where the spiritual agenda shows up. There's a reason for all this. Behind it all is the fact that God is omnipotent. We all know the attributes of God. Go through the essence box. That God is sovereign and he is omnipotent and he is the creator. 
Now, the corollary to that, and this is what's offensive to the sin nature, and this is what unbelief doesn't like to hear. The corollary to a personal, sovereign, omnipotent creator is that you're responsible to him and I'm responsible to him. We're not just responsible to the state, our parents, or someone else. We are ultimately responsible to him. And it's to him that we will answer. Now that puts a burden, that puts a moral obligation on every person. That they, we are ultimately responsible. So we can hide all our little things from different people. But we can't hide from him. On the right side, what is substituted for that kind of God? Ultimately, what is substituted is either fate or chance. Now, I grant you there are a hundred variations of this in actual practice. But boiled down to the essence, this is what we face. It is either the God of Scripture who reveals or we are left with fate and chance. Now, the Bible... Let's turn in the Bible to Ecclesiastes. may not have been in that. Some of you may have to look it up, but that's okay. It's halfway through the Old Testament. And go by the Psalms. And go to the book of Ecclesiastes, right after Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to just briefly talk about a biblical label for all that black stuff and what comes out of it. You probably know it under the term uh, human viewpoint. And that's what we're talking about. Divine viewpoint, human viewpoint. But there's some technical terminology that is used in the scriptures. And in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes is an expose of the vulnerability of human viewpoint. It is a statement by Solomon under the leadership of the Holy Spirit that I've tested this. Solomon, if you want to think of Solomon in cultural terms, it makes sense in history. Think of Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci, I mean, he drew pictures of helicopters in his day. Uh, the guy was a, a futurist, if there ever was one. He was uh, a Renaissance man. He could paint. He could sculpture. He could write textbooks on mathematics and science. The guy did everything. Well, Solomon would have outdone Leonardo da Vinci. That's the kind of guy that Solomon was. Now, granted, Solomon had this tremendous brilliance that kind of got loose after a while. But the Holy Spirit used that. And the book of Ecclesiastes is a very, very important book to expose the fallacies that are involved in this seductive, tempting way of thinking called human viewpoint or unbelief or paganism. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 places the dilemma in focus. This penetrates to the heart of the problem. And the problem is, and, and one of the things that should come out of this is an encouragement for us, is that you know people can laugh at us because we believe the Bible. But you know, really, they are pathetic. The skeptics are the ones who we really shouldn't laugh at them. We should cry about these people. Because they are so blinded, they don't understand the self-deception and the deep level of self-deception that they are involved in. And in Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon says this. 
I'm using the New King James translation here tonight. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, and this is the key, also he has put eternity or holam in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Let's, let's unpack that verse a minute. God has put a holam or a sense of eternity into the heart of every man, woman, and child. There is no such thing, as Paul says in Romans 1, as a real atheist. They're just fooling themselves. All men and women know that God exists and spend a great deal of time trying to avoid him. But in Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says he has put holam in their hearts. This is God consciousness. This is a sense that's there from childhood. You don't have to teach a kid that God is there. Read the biography of Helen Keller, the girl that grew up blind and, and mute and, and uh, deaf. And her, I forgot the, the lady who was her teacher, but she got to that point one day when she was going to teach Helen Keller about God. And she went through the sign language and everything else. And Helen Keller said, I already know that. How did Helen Keller know that? Because all children come programmed by God. They know this is there. So he has put halam in the hearts. But, and here's the big but here. This is the adversative clause. Although we know that God is there and all children know that God is there, the problem is that we don't have the power in our souls because we're created, finite, limited creatures, to understand the comprehensive plan of God. We can only understand a piece here and a piece there. All our doctrines. We understand some doctrines. We understand something about the plan of God, but we don't have a total control over the plan of God. There's surprises going to happen. There are things that he has in mind he hasn't told us. What did Moses say? The secret things of the Lord belong unto him. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and our children. Moses knew this. So, Right here, Solomon is drawing the noose around unbelief by saying that no, once you, once you start the premise here of trying to stop relying on the authority of revelation and you step over to relying upon your own human intellect, immediately you run into a, into a buzzsaw. And what you run into is this verse 11. You cannot develop total answers. Well, you say, well, so what? Here's what, so what? If you're going to make a moral judgment, you've got to make it on a basis of something. You can't just say, well, I think it's wrong or I think it's right. Well, bully for you. So who cares about your moral opinion? Give a justification for the reason why you say that. Back in Robbie's home church at... Um, in Connecticut, they're having a big debate because the state of Connecticut, after 20 years, is going to execute this fellow that's murdered and raped about eight or nine women. And so everybody's in a stir because the governor of Connecticut is going to do it. She refuses to grant clemency. And you should see this stuff that comes out on the papers that, oh, the Bible says thou shalt not kill. And, oh, we go into all this. And I think that's horrible that the United States does this. Of course, if they had read the Constitution of the United States, there's two places in the Constitution that talk about capital punishment. Never see that. Amendment 5 and Amendment 14 talk about due process of law. No man shall be uh, deprived of his what? Or liberty? 
life or liberty. So it shows clearly the Constitution recognizes capital punishment. Capital punishment is recognized in Romans 13. There's a justification for capital punishment, but it's a judgment in our generation. We have the media out there. We have the person next door that just don't get it, that moral judgments require absolute truth. And you can't generate absolute truths out from the soul. Only God can do that. That's Ecclesiastes 3.11. No man can know the, the plan of God. No man has the capability of an infinite understanding. Let's come now to Ecclesiastes 12.13. He concludes this book going through all the agonizing trials and tests that he did. He tried the wealth test. He tried all kinds of things that we're tempted to be. Save yourself, hard knocks. Learn from Solomon. He, he went through and he had all the assets to try everything. But in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, we come down to the end. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. After all the experiments, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And the idea is what? Step one of the faith rest drill. Fear God and keep his commandments. We go back to the authority of revelation. Why? Well, he fills out in the rest of the verse. Because we're going to be accountable. What's the rest of the verse say? We're going to have to answer for the details in our life. So it probably is smart to find out what the guidelines are in the first place. So you know how you wind up in the end. That in the, is the, the essence of the argument of Solomon. Now let's come over to the New Testament. Because what we're studying is the weaknesses of human viewpoints. So it, we're going to try to undercut its seductiveness. Let's turn to James chapter 4. The word, by the way, that, uh, that Solomon uses for, is vanity. It's, it's a Hebrew word called havail. Um, and in the New Testament, it's matayotes in the Greek. Paul uses it. But the principle, the, the word picture that you want to see behind the term is found here in James 4, 13 through 15. Now, this was written to Jewish businessmen. So it's in a business context, but you can generalize this to all of life. What James is doing is he's talking to believers who in their businesses, their everyday calling, they're operating as though the scriptures really are irrelevant to their business. So he says, come on, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Now, that's, that's a business plan. That's a business model. And he's, he's saying, when you make your business model, he's not arguing, don't make a business model. He's just saying that when you make a business model, be aware of something. And that's the next verse. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So James is, is quick to point out he's not against planning. What he's against is planning as though God is not sovereign, as though he is not omnipotent, as though he's not going to be involved in your life t tomorrow. Now, I'm a weather forecaster, so when I see that you know not what shall happen tomorrow, I've had a lot of experience with that. But we could go on and enlarge that a little bit. Think of people investing in the stock market. If you could really know 
If you could really know what's going to happen tomorrow, you'd be a billionaire. There are ways of playing the market. All you would need would be perfect knowledge of tomorrow. It would only take a couple of days. and You could make a pile and retire for the rest of your life. But no man can do that because we don't know for sure what's going to happen tomorrow. And why don't we know for sure what's going to happen tomorrow? Because ultimately it's in God's hands. There's nothing inside, as, as Solomon says, that we can get a handle on through which we can perfectly predict the future. Can't be done, no matter how big your computer is. So let me summarize, before we go any further, the three weaknesses of human viewpoint or unbelief. Now, I'm going to refer to it in this series as paganism. And I know that kind of uh, bothers people sometimes, but I'm using the word pagan to refer, as the dictionary says, to anyone who does not believe in the God of the Bible. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a term that means people are bad. It, it's a term that's describing their belief system. So, America, our country, is rapidly becoming a pagan nation. We started off with a Christian influence that was very powerful. As a country, we were extremely blessed. I mean, some countries don't have one or two people like we had when this country was founded. You know, you don't get a George Washington every generation. You don't get a Ben Franklin. You don't get a Thomas Jefferson. You don't get a Witherspoon. You don't get these guys in every generation. But God, it seems like he just dropped a cluster of these guys right in one generation when this country was founded. And we have progressively learned to not listen to them, expressed in the Constitution and other means. But as paganism tries to develop, it is a seductive program and it comes out of the experience in the garden. But before we go to the garden, I want to summarize three points. One is, ultimately, unbelief tries to attempt the impossible. Ecclesiastes 3. It tries to substitute for the authority of the Word of God, which gives us absolute truth, to create the absolute truth out of the resources of the finite human soul. And it just falls apart every time. Think of what James just said. It can be seen in a normal, everyday business plan. You can't plan perfectly for the future because we're creatures. So, first thing about unbelief is that it attempts the impossible. The second thing is that it's built on a deliberate choice to become deceived. I'm going to come back to that. Unbelief is a deliberate choice by which I choose to be deceived. It's a conscious choice to be deceived. Finally, the third thing is that there are three basic expressions. These are the extreme forms of unbelief. And, and Bracken years ago, Bob used to mention this. Rationalism, empiricism, and, and more recently, there's a selfism or existentialism, or Robbie points out, a mysticism. So there's three ways, and they all have their little weaknesses and their various flavors of unbelief. But one of the things to, to, to think about as, as we go into this uh, I'm going to take you to empiricism for a moment in a chart here, but I, before I get there, I want to stress the second principle I just gave you, that unbelief is a deliberate choice to be deceived. 
Let's turn to Genesis 3. You know, back in the beginning of the 20th century, there was a very famous psychiatrist in Vienna by the name of Sigmund Freud. And if you've taken courses in psychology, of course, you know about Sigmund Freud. And you know that in particular why Sigmund Freud was so crucial in the history of psychology and psychiatry is that he made people realize that our minds are very complicated. There's, there's levels down here in the depth, depth psychology. And sometimes we're even unconscious of what's going on down there. But we're like a supercomputer. We've got a, a program deep down. And sometimes we're conscious of it and sometimes we're not. And it was Freud who drew, drew the world's attention to this. Now, we dis disagree with what he says abides there. But the idea of digging down into the human mind and seeing that it has a profound level of depth underneath, that's, that's biblical. Let's go to Genesis 3 and see what happens. After the fall, we're, we're, we've gone through the fall here, and um, in verse 7, we have that moment when Adam and Eve chose to disobey the word of God. And it says the eyes of both of them were opened, they knew they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. So right away, you have an awareness that something's wrong. Fundamentally, every person knows that this reality we live in, it's abnormal. You can't look at the tsunami. You can't look at uh, the guys that are coming home with their legs blown off from Iraq and say, this is normal life. This is not the way God created the, created the universe. There's something wrong with everything. We live in an abnormal world. So we have coping mechanisms. And Adam and Eve decided that they knew they were naked, so they're going to sew fig leaves together. And, of course, we know the story. God provides the clothing which of imputed righteousness. There's something deep. This is not just talking about clothing styles here. This is talking about a sense that they were naked before God. And they were sinful before God. And they were exposed before God. So they have this sense that, you know, gee, I'm... Uh, all of a sudden, I'm aware that God is holy and just, and I'm aware that I don't meet the standard. i got a problem. So I'm going to solve the problem. So immediately they start trying to solve the problem that is not a problem-solving problem. It doesn't work. Because God comes along and says, that's not the problem. You need imputed righteousness. And I'm going to give it to you. But you need that, and your fig leaves isn't going to solve a problem. Well, then it goes further. And this one is, is, I think, the clearest way to see what I mean by being deceived. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, would you say, if you look at verse 8 and consider what verse 8 really says, would you say yes or no to the question, did Adam and Eve lose their sense of God consciousness? Well, not really. Why did they flee his presence? Because they knew God was there. See, God consciousness wasn't lost at the fall. There's no such thing as an atheist. What we have are people who are trying to flee his presence. And it's the word of grace that pulls us out of that. That's the call of God in the gospel. It's the grace. But if we are not going to listen to God in his grace, then we're going to do what verse 8 says. And what I'm suggesting to you is that verse 8 is a picture, easy to see picture. A child can see this picture of fleeing. 
They don't flee somebody they don't believe in. They flee precisely because they know he's there and they know they're abnormal and they know the relationship is fractured. So they know all that. Then what they do is they hide. Now, let's go advance one step further. If you and I try to hide from God, think of the essence box. What attributes of God have we already denied? Right there. The idea that we can hide violates his omnipresence, doesn't it? If we really believe God is omnipresent, we're not going to hide because we can't hide from omnipresence. But isn't it interesting that within moments of the fall, theological doctrines change? Look how rapidly Adam and his wife alter their theological belief system to accommodate themselves to their new situation of animosity to God. We have a, a massive doctrinal shift here that denies the attributes of God. And what does later passages of the Old Testament say? That is called idolatry. What is an idol? An idol is a God substitute made by me so I can control it. If I make the God, I make the goddess, I carve it, then I control it. I want a God I can control because I don't like this idea that this is his universe and I'm kind of the guy that really can't speak up here. This is his turf, not mine. So, back in this little simple story of Genesis, this true history, a child can read this, a child can see it. The tribes and new tribes mission, when they go in, this is one of the stories they emphasize over. The natives can sit there and they can, they can enter into the story and they can learn doctrine from this story. Well, what do they learn? They learn that at the bottom, the depth of the human soul is in rebellion against God and the manifestation is falsehood, deception, perversion of truth. There is an agenda behind human viewpoint. It is a moral agenda. And I've, 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 in the framework series, the way I summarize this is the agenda is this. We want to make the world safe for sinners. It's an attempt to make the world and insulate it from interference. We don't want God to interfere. That's the agenda. And you have to kind of learn to see this. And when you talk to non-Christians, maybe people in your family or so on, just listen to it. Listen to how they talk to you in conversations. Just pay attention and listen. And you'll hear this if you look for it. What you're seeing is somebody comes in and they're, they, they, five minutes ago they told you they don't believe in God. Something bad happens and who do they curse? Now, what has popped loose in five minutes? Their God consciousness has been exposed. Meaning that what they told you five minutes ago was a big lie. All along they knew God exists. It's just it popped loose here because in response to something, they, had to make a, they got morally indignant over something and the moment they did that, all the fig leaves fell off. And you, you were there, you were a witness to the fact that they're God. Oh, gee, here, you'd be an interesting person now. Now you're mad, and you're mad at God. That's interesting. Five minutes ago you tell me he didn't exist. So learn to watch for these pop-ups when someone who oftentimes will tell you, oh, they're unbelievable, they don't believe the Bible and all the rest of this. Just watch. Just watch. There will come times in their lives when it just pops up, they can't help it. The fig leaves fall off. 
and the whole facade is exposed. It is a choice to be deceived. A choice to be deceived because I want to make the world safe from his interference in my life. That's the agenda. So when we talk philosophy, we could go off into all the intellectual issues. Well, we won't do that because we know deep down we want the agenda issue. That's what spawns all this other stuff that goes to smoke and mirrors. Well, I want to just show you how the smoke and mirrors works out. And in the framework, I've used this diagram. Thankfully, Tom has uh, improved the printing, so I hope it's clear now. Um, this was created, this is not my diagram actually, years ago, uh, a Spanish biologist who was a Bible-believing Christian made this up. To he had to sort through in his, in, his own, uh, in his own research how as a Christian he should look at science. Now here we deal with, remember I said that unbelief comes in three brands, rationalism, empiricism, or existentialism? Well, this is empiricism. Now, Here's what you get in school. I've never been in, in any school classroom, be it university, high school, grammar school. Uh, your kids, if they go into public school, they're going to get this. I mean, that's just the way it is. Grandchildren, they're getting it. They get presented in the classroom this, this naive idea that science is purely objective. That it's just looking at the facts, making hypotheses, testing the hypothesis and seeing if it's true. Does that sound familiar? See it in Discovery Channel, you read about National Geographic, it's all over the place. All that is is naive empiricism and does not come seriously to grips with this problem. Here's the problem. If you look at the graph, we have a situation where the bottom line of this graph is time. The y-axis, the vertical one, is space. And it's scaled logarithmically, but we don't get into that. That center box that you see with the vertical lines is the area in time and space that you can personally observe. And you can't observe anything outside of the box. Now let's think about that for a minute. The right side of the box, if you go out in longer and longer time periods, you're not going to live long enough to make an observation. And you haven't lived long enough to make observations. So you're cut off, you're chopped on the right side of that box. In the bottom part of the box, as you try to look at smaller and smaller and smaller things, you need tools like a microscope, but finally that gives out. And there are things that you can't see. And we don't know what they are because we haven't seen them. But the point is that instruments somewhat increase your ability to see, but they're limited. On the left side of the box... That's high speed. That's smaller and smaller increments of time. I work at Aberdeen Proving Ground and one of the things we have to do is set up high speed cameras to study what happens to a tank bullet when it's emitted from the gun because the point is today the modern uh, tank warfare doesn't use explosive charges. They use steel on steel. And they come as a surprise, but there's no charge in any of those, those weapons. They're just a rod that goes so fast that it penetrates steel. And the idea is that it has to be accelerated very fast out of that short barrel. And there's all kinds of aerodynamic problems with that. And so to test it, we have these cameras that are amazingly fast. And they actually, you can see that bullet come out, and you can see it start to turn and do all the neat things it's supposed to do. Well, that's high-speed photography. But there are some things that happen so fast you can't film it. 
So we're limited there. And of course, we could go with a telescope. Now, the box with the vertical lines is what is directly observable. Nothing else is directly observable. So everything you hear about atoms, molecules, what happened 3,000 years prior to Abraham or 10,000 years or a million years, 3 million years, a billion years, all that is not directly observable. What did God say to Job? In Job 38, where were you when I did what? When I laid the foundations of the earth. Tell me. You know, were you there, Job? Let's have a discussion about what went on. You tell me. You were there. Eyewitness, right? Scientific observer. So, you know everything. You tell me what went on. Job 38, 39, and 40 are great. It's about a 75 question quiz that is aimed to humble the would-be intellectual. Not that being, using your intellect is wrong. It's just using it wrong way. So I want to add something about that hashed area. The, the square with the vertical lines is direct observation. The hatched area, telescope, unprocessed film, microscope, all that, that's instrumentation. Now let me tell you a story about instrumentation. Whenever you look at something through an instrument, you're having to apply a theory to the interpretation of what you're looking at. Let me give you an example. About 10, 15 years ago, an airplane was, one of the commercial planes, I don't know what's Delta or who, was flying into an approach to Atlanta airport. That plane pancaked in the middle of a thunderstorm and killed everybody aboard. Upon investigation of what went wrong with that pilot's approach was that he had what we call a three centimeter radar in the nose of that plane. That particular radar is looking out to see what people you see on the Weather Channel and other things. Oh, that's, that's rain coming. See that big streak? No. What that is is radar returns. It may be rain or it might not be rain. And there may be rain going on out there that the radar doesn't report. You've got to interpret that image. And there are rules of interpreting that image that depend on theory. So here's this pilot and he's flying approach to Atlanta airport. He looks on his chart and he sees there's a big line of thunderstorms out ahead. So like a good pilot, he says, okay, I've got to penetrate this line. Where am I going to penetrate the line? I'm going to penetrate the line where it's the weakest. So he looks at his radar and he sees the line is very thin right here and then it gets big and fat over here. It's thin, gets big fat over here. So where do you suppose he flies? He flies right here where it's thin because, you know, hey, don't, aren't I looking at rain? Made a fatal mistake. The reason the line was thin there was because it was raining so hard it attenuated the radar return. What he did unintentionally was fly the plane into the worst possible place in that line of thunderstorms. The engines ingested water, they flamed out, he had little lift on the wing because of the amount of water vapor wrecking the airfoil, and he crashed. He killed everybody, including himself. Now, that's a classic illustration of instrumentations, symbols, images, signals, all have to be interpreted. You have to have theory upon theory. And when you hear scientists say, oh, you'll see a headline oftentimes in the paper, well, out in galaxy XYZ253, we saw a planet. That's the headline. But if you read the story of what went on, it would go something like this, and no editor would write it this way. Scientists have looked at the particular kind of radiative pattern that's emanating from this area of the sky, and they've interpreted 
the oscillation in the signal to be that of a rotating body in, in the circle, according to their particular theory. Now, would that make a big headline? Wouldn't that turn you on? Just like love to read that kind of a story. But see, the editors, because they have to sell newspapers, try to make it simple. But in making it simple, they've destroyed the layers of theory that went into interpreting that. And it becomes a headline. And the science says. So, remember this diagram. And by the way, something else to remember about the diagram, and that is, you can't go to the right. There's never been a time machine made. So, we have then the problem of conjecturing. And what we are told in, in, in our classrooms that science is the subjective thing. No, it isn't. Every time you theorize, you're picking out from a possibility of 30 or 40 theories one that you like. And there's a spiritual agenda about what you like. So don't tell me it's objective. There's no such thing as theory neutrality. But all of our public education is built on the idea that there's something out there that's perfectly objective. The only thing objective is the Word of God. God Himself is objective. And He gives us objective revelation. And that's the only thing we can find that's revelation. Now let's go to Paul's writings in Colossians. There's an there's a excellent passage in Colossians chapter 2. Paul, at, in Colossians, he's dealing with Gnosticism. He's dealing with, with a f problems that pretty deeply rooted in the pagan mind. And he makes a pronouncement in Romans chap I mean Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. That is a sobering warning about how easy it is to be intellectually seduced. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Notice the word cheat. Beware that anybody cheat you. What do you do when you cheat somebody? You give them something that has a false value to it. And it really doesn't, isn't as valuable as, as, as the price tag. It's cheating. So he says, somebody's going to come to you and they're going to sell you on this big deal. This is a good deal. This is very valuable. You should spend $10,000 a year letting me teach you this in some course somewhere. And, it, and it's just air. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. I want to comment on two things about that verse. The world and according to Christ. Adversative clauses here. Okay? One, on one side, is he's saying not according to the elements of this world. If you were to take a Greek lexicon and look up the word that Paul uses here for principles, some of your translations have elements, but if you look up that word, stoichia, and you go back into the lexicon and say, what does this word mean? How was it used in Paul's day? You know what you'd find? You'd find that this was a word that the Greek philosophers used to describe that from which the universe came. And some of you, if you've read in mythology, you know that some people believe that the universe came out of fire, some believe out of earth, some believe out of water, and so on. And if you think about it, it's solid, liquid, and gas, what they're talking about. The idea was that the whole universe came out of this substance. No, it came out of that substance. No, I believe it came out of this substance. That's the word Paul uses here. And he's saying that philosophy and vain deceit is based according to these basic principles, these Greek categories of thinking, 
and not according to Christ. Now, if you look up the way he uses the word Christos in this epistle, he's talking more about more than just Jesus stories. He's talking about who Christ is, the God-man, the incarnate God, that Jesus has true humanity, he has undiminished deity, he has one personality, he is the second person of the Trinity. See, the Greeks always had this problem of how do you know the absolute? And what Paul is saying, what we have to do as Christians is think, look, God walked the face of this planet. Don't tell me that we can't come to know him. We can't come to know him totally, but we can certainly know him. I met him on the Damascus Road. Talked to Peter, talked to John. They ate with this guy for three years. They know God because they, they saw him. He became incarnate. So I won't go into all the details here, but this is a sobering warning in Colossians 2. There's something tragically wrong in depth at a very deep level with all thought that originates outside of the scriptures. Now, I want to take you to one more slide here tonight. This is my amoeba slide. Um, as I said in my framework series, I got this from my dentist in order to promote among his patients the idea that you should keep your mouth clean. He would stick a camera with a magnifying, it's a little microscope, you put, it's a kind of TV camera you put on a microscope. And he'd go in there and he'd take a sample out of your mouth and then he'd say, what's the kind of germs you've got in your mouth? And uh, then and one time he showed me this slide, thankfully it didn't come out of my mouth, he showed me this slide and here was this amoeba crawling across the screen. And it reminded my high school biology of the amoebas and watching them eat things. An amoeba kind of assimilates things around it. Now, why I'm showing you this picture of the amoeba is to stimulate your imaginations a little bit. What happens, and this is the game that's being played all the time out there. This is Colossians 2.8 and other passages. If we put forward a truth from God's word, let's say that's the circle, that, that's that yellow circle there. What unbelief tries to do is surround it and reinterpret it so that it makes it safe. Remember, the word of God is truth. It's hot, high voltage. And what unbelief tries to do is ground it. Unbelief tries to disarm the word of God so to relieve the pressure. It's always that way. You can think of it this way. Imagine a neighbor who has become a Christian. And you're down the street and you talk to another neighbor and you're talking about this Mary. Mary became a Christian last night. Trusted in Jesus Christ. The gospel is clear and she became a Christian. The unbeliever says, oh, no, Mary, you know, you don't know Mary. Mary had a lot of psychological problems. This is just a way she has for a while. You know, it's true for her, but it's not really true for me or anything. It's just a psychological thing that Mary is going through right now. She'll get over it in a little bit. Now, what's that conversation trying to do? It's trying to take a true truth and weave a, a network around it that disarms it, that makes someone who doesn't want to confront the truth of the gospel uh, comfortable. So they invent all kinds of stories in the web. So the idea is that we've got to figure out how the word of God can go forward in such a way that it becomes extremely difficult to surround. And I call this strategic envelopment, using a military term. There's a strategy of unbelief 
forwarded by Satan, the God of this world, to disarm the Word of God everywhere he can find it, to cause it to be unbelieved. And this agenda of encirclement or strategic envelopment is a strategy that has been used since Eden's time. So, therefore, the issue is how do we approach this? I'm going to suggest that the framework can be shown, the, the, the idea that the framework is a way of strategically enveloping unbelief. One will triumph over the other, but there'll never be neutrality. Either the Word of God will control the interpretation of an event, or unbelief will control the interpretation of the Word of God. One or the other. Whatever area of life you're involved with. Two ultimate principles are in collision. So it's one or the other. In the Christological controversy, this was a time in church history. And I'm, I'm going to this as, as an example. I'm going to close here in a little minute. But I'm going to go back to the Christological controversy because this is a chance for us to see how the Holy Spirit taught the body of Christ in a previous generation. And I'm going to show you another slide that it shows that the Holy Spirit from century after century after century, every time there's been a doctrinal conflict in the development of the doctrines of Christianity, the Holy Spirit has always followed the strategy of enveloping the unbelieving heresy. In the early centuries, church fathers debated who Jesus Christ was. They knew he was the Messiah, but because they had a lot of Greek stuff in their minds, they kept thinking in terms of solitary monotheism. In other words, they didn't believe in the Trinity. Well, if you believe in solitary monotheism, you've got a problem with Jesus. Who is he talking with in the garden if there's only solitary monotheists? If there's only one person in the Godhead? Which one was talking to whom in the garden? Was it Jesus' humanity talking to his deity? Well, if this was going on, then Jesus in the garden wasn't truly God. And they had a number of these, these puzzles that they went through. And this took centuries. I mean, this is three or four hundred years that they debated how do we state the doctrine of Jesus Christ so it fits all the scripture. And finally they came out with a Chalcedon uh, statement which says Jesus Christ is true humanity. One point. United with undiminished deity. Undiminished deity. In one person forever without confusion. There are five or six of basic parts to that doctrine of who Jesus Christ is. But the point I want to make is not, we're not teaching Christology tonight. The point I want to make is that the Holy Spirit had to eliminate solitary monotheism and replace it with a trinity, which challenged Aristotelian logic. It challenged all kinds of things. What is the lesson we learned from this? That when you look at the scriptures and you ask yourself, what is the truth? How do I formulate all the doctrine, all the scriptures, so I don't neglect this verse and I don't neglect that verse and I've properly interpreted this and I pull it all together in a doctrine? I find when I do that, I go against some pretty deep, heavy stuff out there. And in church history, that happened. In summary, I want just to show you this. We'll bring this up again uh, tomorrow. But... Here's a sequence of the great um, debates down through church history. The first one was, the, what was the canon? What was the scripture? How do you tell the Gospel of Matthew from the Gospel of Thomas? 
Well, there's lots of Gospels, a whole bunch of Gospels. We only have four in the Scripture. Well, what about the other Gospels? How come they weren't involved? The reason they weren't involved is because they taught heresy. This is why if you come out of a Roman Catholic background, your Bible doesn't look like this one. You look at a Roman Catholic Bible, there's some extra books in there between the Old and the New Testament called the Apocrypha because they don't accept the same canon of Scripture. Protestants don't accept those books. Why? Because they're talking about praying for the dead and all kinds of stuff in the, in the Apocrypha, false doctrine. So we recognize what's Scripture and what isn't. But in debating that, they had to deal with who God was as the revealing God, the Creator who made language and He could talk to men. So there was a whole strategic envelopment about what is language. Too bad people in the 20th century don't read that because they wouldn't have got into all this positivism and so forth. Then we come to the Trinity and the person of Christ. And what had to happen there? They had to get abandoned Aristotelian logic to handle the Trinity. God is three and God is one and threeness doesn't apply the same way to the Creator as it does to the creature. And I, we don't know all the details, but we know that that God is not three the way we think of three. He's three in his person, but not in his essence and, and all that's involved there. And the choice was made to go with Scripture over against the Aristotelian logical categories. And then we came down to the Middle Ages and the answer there was Anselm. He um, dealt with this issue of what was accomplished on the cross. Now, if you go to a liberal church... They're still debating this. This was handled in 1000 AD people 10 centuries ago. They debated this. And there were two schools of thought. One by Abelard, the liberal, who said, Jesus died on the cross a martyr's death to inspire us to live godly lives. Anselm said, Jesus died on the cross because of a transaction that was going on. He died to make us saved. He, he died to make atonement for sin. Now those are two questions that came up ten centuries ago. And you can read people, New York Times now, doesn't know the difference. Then we come, and, and by the way, you know the battle that had to happen there? Anselm had to defend what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us by defining what justice was. That God is the standard of justice and there has to be restitution to correct broken justice. And that's the substitution. The father isn't looking down saying, oh, well, I forgive you. That's arbitrary. God can't arbitrarily forgive because the moment God arbitrarily forgives, what happens to the standard of justice? It goes down the drain. See, this is the problem Islam has today. How does Allah forgive sin if there's no blood atonement? Well... He just gives, you know, if I've killed five American soldiers, he lets me in heaven. Um, that's a good work. But see, that's merit. And back here they had to define that justice can't be arbitrary. It is rooted in the who and how, how, what God is. And therefore, that's the standard. So you can debate all you want to. But if we're going to be right with God, then we have to meet perfectly his perfect justice and his righteousness. So there was a whole discussion of what justice was about. Too bad it's not studied in law school anymore. And then there was a discussion of human merit. What is the role of human merit? What's that? That's the Reformation. 
Well, I know Jesus died for my sin, but I, you know, I've got 85 good works and so on and this and that. Sola fide. Only by faith. My human good doesn't amount to hill of beans against God's righteousness and justice. And get it through our heads. This was debated in the 1500s, five centuries ago, and we have evangelicals still messing around with this. What's the matter with us here? Then we have the doctrine of ecclesiology and eschatology that's debated now in dispensational theology. That started in the early 1800s. And that dealt with what is the state. You see, after the Reformation, the Protestants attacked the Catholics and then turned around and made state churches. Right? What was the state church in Germany? Lutheran. What was the state church in England? Anglican. So if you belong to the community and wanted to vote or wanted to participate, what did you have to do? Have to be baptized. In what church? That church. Because whereas, whereas the Vatican is a state, has an ambassador, the Vatican is not just a church. It is a state. It is a nation. And so you have this nation state. Then you have the Protestants generating the church state. And we come finally to dispensationalism. The church isn't the state. The church is made up of those people who are born again, who trust in Jesus Christ. And that is a separate thing than the divine institution of human government. Those are two distinct things. You can't mix these. These are different. That came out. That, and we're still debating that one. That's gone on for 150 years. And today, it's where history is going. Where it's come from. The whole idea of what history is. So, this is the, this is the background, people, of what happens when, when, when we allow the Word of God to be tactically and strategically enveloped. And I'm going to close with a passage from the Old Testament that is a picturesque idea. It's easy to carry this picture away. Um, again, a child can see it. If you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5, this is what we try to do with the framework or prevent from happening. Syncretism. Joining the Word of God to, the, uh, to unbelief and mixing the two together. 1 Samuel chapter 5. This is a passage that deals with the Ark of God in the Old Testament. The Philistines captured this Ark. And they took it back to Philistia, out down the roads from, from the highlands where the Jews were, where Israel was. And they took it back down and they captured it. And they thought, boy, we got them now. We got Israel now. We got their God. Let's bring them down here. So watch what happens. The Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philippians took the Ark of God, look what they did with it. They brought it into the house of Dagon. Dagon was the god of the Philistines. And set it by Dagon. Now that's what a lot of people do with the Bible. We're going to have Jesus join all our other gods and gods. We'll add the Bible to our other literature on an equal basis. So now the Philistines, in good ecumenical spirit, say, let's, let's all join together now. Can't Jews and Canaanites be at peace? Why? We all worship the same God. Let's, let's all bring them all together now in one big ecumenical love, love in. So they bring it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of God. 
So they took Dagon and set it up in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face in the ground before the ark of the Lord. And this time, the hand of Dagon and both palms of his hands were broken off. Now, some of the angels had a party there one night. See, that's where they took care of Dagon, all right. What's the lesson we learn here? God doesn't share his throne with anybody. He isn't going to be absorbed into some system of unbelief. He doesn't share divine rights with idolatrous gods and goddesses. So when we approach the framework and we get into the methodology of it, it's designed to try to, to avoid this syncretism. Uh, we're going to end now, and uh, I, I promised that I would let everybody out, and I'm running a little late here. But um, we'll, we'll end with a word of prayer. And those of you I know have to leave, you've got commitments, go ahead. But I will be here if, and to have some Q&A here for those of you who would like some give and take. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you most of all for the word of God that you have preserved down through the times of history. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who has taught doctrine and developed doctrine over the centuries of time. We pray that we would be sensitive to the fact that many good Christians have gone before us and fought great doctrinal battles to bring truth to light. And we stand on their shoulders tonight looking forward into our generation and doing battle in our generation as those great saints did battles in their generations. We thank you that this is possible because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. In whose name we pray. Amen.